So today we are going to continue our series in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 this morning, Acts chapter 8, the back half, or the, actually the middle half of 8. Now, uh, this is the second time we've been in Acts. This is Acts part 2. We did part 1 uh, back a couple years ago. We're going into part 2 today. Uh, if you don't know much about Acts, it's written by Luke. Luke, who was a doctor in the time of Jesus. He's the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it is a piece of history. It's historical literature. Remember, the Bible is made up of 66 books, and they're all different types of literature. This is historical literature. So its purpose is to explain to us what the early church looked like. And we see them uh, as we went through in 2021, and we started this first part, and we went through chapters 1 through 7. And we saw them in their purpose, which was to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. So they started that by spreading the gospel in Jerusalem. We saw the power of the Holy Spirit fall on them and use them to spread God's word. Uh, and in this section, we're covering 8 to 12. And this is when the persecution starts to hit the church and they start to spread out uh, and take the gospel to different areas. And, and so this section really teaches us uh, a lot about how to respond to persecution and how the gospel spreads. And, and as we learn how they responded and how God worked through it, it teaches us how to be the church today. Um, now, as we cover today's passage, last week we saw what I just said. We saw them go into Judea and Samaria, the areas of surrounding Jerusalem as the persecution started to hit, and they started to spread the gospel to new people that had never heard it before. So we got reminded that the persecution really benefits the gospel. It, it can support the gospel. Even though it's not pleasant for us, it's good for the gospel. Now, today we're going to be reminded that any time the gospel is spread anywhere, that not everyone who hears it is going to be saved by it. As the writer of Hebrews says, that there are going to be those who hear the gospel, and, and because of it, they, they are going to have faith to the extent that it preserves their soul. And there are going to be those who hear the gospel, and they are going to shrink back to destruction. And so there is a warning today for every single one of us that has eternal consequences. So I pray that the Holy Spirit gives us the eyes to see and the ears to hear what God would speak to us through his word today. Amen? Amen. Let me read the passage for you and then we'll break it down. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, and who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them. 
but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, pray for me, Lord. Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This is the, the word of the Lord. So we are introduced to a man named Simon, who was some kind of uh, magician. Some, uh, some uh, have called him a sorcerer. Now magicians, they were pretty popular in Greco-Roman times. Now, and we don't know the extent to the, the level of magic he was performing. Was he pulling bunnies out of hats, right? Or was it something more than that? We do know that the Old Testament taught us that certain pagan sorcerers, sorcerers who did not follow God, could actually duplicate some of God's signs on a small and a limited scale. Now, whatever he was doing, it was impressing the people around him. Luke says that he performed great miracles, which makes me think it was more than just parlor tricks, and that people were amazed. I wanted to do some magic tricks this morning, but Tim told me I couldn't do them. I was really sad, too, because I got some fun ones, but, you know, he was probably right. So all these people are amazed. They're seeing the stuff that he's doing. And then comes along Philip, who like we saw last week, was preaching the word of God and we saw God endow Philip with these certain abilities to perform certain miracles like Christ did to get people's attention to the word of God. And his miracles, they must have been far beyond what Simon could do because like Simon was, he was amazed. He got baptized, he believed, he started to following Philip. Now the apostles hear about this, right? The apostles, another name for uh, early disciples of Christ who become leaders in the church. They got wind of this, and they decided to go down. They sent John and Peter. They sent them down to Samaria. Now, why did they come down? They came down so that these people, these Samarians, these new Christians, could receive the Holy Spirit. It says here in Acts 8.17, when they got down there, that they laid their hands on them, these new Christians, and they received the Holy Spirit the third member of the Godhead. Now this is a really interesting phrase. What does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to receive the third member of the Godhead? Now historically, these verses have been very difficult for some to understand. That's actually many. Some will contend that this text teaches that not all believers receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. 
and, and then must therefore seek a later, later spiritual experience. So instead of you repent, uh, calling on the name of the Lord as your, as your Savior, as your Lord, and the Holy Spirit coming to indwell with you, they say, yeah, you become saved, but the Holy Spirit's not with you yet. And, and usually a sign of this they will teach is, is speaking in tongues like in a foreign language that others will interpret that don't know that language or, or prophesy. So advocates of this view, they'll, they'll say, look, you can be saved and yet be devoid of the Holy Spirit. However, I think that this view is very misguided. We must remember when you read scripture to read it in its context. And this is a very unique moment in the redemptive history of the world. This was the first case of the Holy Spirit's power moving beyond what happened in Jerusalem. And I think the Lord sovereignly waited to give any manifestation of the Holy Spirit until the apostles could be there to witness it. Why? Because remember, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. The Jews looked down on Samaritans as half-breeds, would refer to them as dogs because they were a mixed race. And so I think some would have heard, hey, the Samaritans have found God and they would not believe it because part of their hearts are still hard. You, you know how hard it is, even after you find Christ, to let go of previous um, views of people. And so I think what happened is when the apostles came down and laid their hands on him, and they, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Everybody, no matter what you felt about them, no matter how hard your heart was about these people, everybody had to testify like, yeah, man, look at them. They are obviously belong to God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ now. I believe this is the correct way to view this passage. And it is a good reminder that it is dangerous, dangerous to create or base any doctrine on what is recorded in one passage without taking the rest of scripture into view. For example, Acts 1 through 10. Acts is a transitional book. It's transitioning from the gospels to the creation of the church. And so we have to read these things and say, okay, when something happens, it could be a permanent thing, but it also could be a transitional thing. How do I know? How do I view this? You go to the, what the rest of Scripture teaches. So many churches have been led astray by basing major doctrinal theologies on one passage in the Bible without looking to the rest to bring context. Not to mention that the New Testament makes it clear that people who do not have the Spirit of God are not believers that the very act of the Spirit brings about salvation. And he does not leave afterwards. And we have to remember, because they'll teach otherwise, there are many other gifts, there are many other signs of the Holy Spirit at work in your life beyond some of the gifts of the Spirit that we read in Corinthians or in Romans. Just take the fruit of the Spirit, which we preached on a few years ago. Love, when you have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
All right, now Luke, he does not tell what happened exactly when these Samaritan Christians received the Holy Spirit. But whatever it was, it got Simon super excited. Because it says this in Acts 18, 8, 18, and 19. It says, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may also receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this seems like a really weird request because we, we see earlier Simon believed and then he got baptized. He got dunked. The story of Simon the magician, it is a good reminder that belief does not always mean a saving faith. Paul taught the same in 1 Corinthians. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, that if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, there is such a thing as believing in the gospel in vain. This is a reminder. Someone can do all the motions. They can do all the steps and their hearts still remain unchanged. It is troubling to think that it is possible someone will attend church here today who is in this place. Now, there are, there are different ways to know if someone's heart or changed, but for today's message and the context, one of the ways that we know this is that the gospel is not enough for them. The gospel of Jesus Christ saving us from our sins is not enough. They're, they're still looking for something else from God. You see, a saving faith says, God has given me everything that I could ever need. Everything I could ever need. And this is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom in heaven. In other words, he's saying, blessed are those who realize the place that they were in that they had sinned against God, they had turned their, their back against God, that they had no hope without Jesus. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to realize your lot in life without Christ for all of eternity, to realize I, I, I got nothing without him, nothing. I am nothing. And it's a shame because so many false ministries are built on the foundation of what you can get out from God beyond just the gospel. And what the gospel says is he's already done everything that you could ever need. And the beautiful part is, is if you understand this and you actually take the time to do it and you're following God, you will spend the rest of your life unpacking and unfolding and discovering over and over how the gospel changes everything. And if you've been a Christian for a long time and you've really been pursuing God, you know what I mean. You'll learn about one truth and it'll bring you joy. And then you'll learn about another and another and another and another for decades until the day God calls you home. It is a never-ending story of how God, through his death and resurrection, has changed everything even in little areas. 
Like this morning, all of us have had crazy weekends. We've all had crazy weekends, like the band. We were all talking about the different crazy stuff that we had. You know, and, and, and we were sitting here and we were going, man, isn't it beautiful that even though we've all had crazy weekends, we can sit here and say that there is a God that is greater than all our craziest and chaos. And that his spirit is gonna give us what we need. So we don't gotta worry. We don't gotta stress. And so it's through your whole life that these little areas, the beauty of the gospel continues to unfold. You don't need anything extra. In fact, I was listening to this song that came yesterday. It came out a year ago. It's called Because of Christ. And one of the lines, it says, it is because of Christ I am alive. And the song goes on to say, may I never boast in anything but Jesus Christ. For the gospel is everything that I need. Amen. Simon is a warning. He's a warning that people can believe in vain. He is a warning of what pride can do in your life. He's a warning to people like me. He's a warning to anybody in ministry who is up in front of others, who, who preaches or, or speaks or teaches, who sings, who plays instruments. He is a warning to constantly check your heart. Are you bringing glory to God or are you using the name of God to bring glory to yourself? Are your gifts and your abilities, are they, are they pointing people to the beauty of the gospel or are you using the gospel to point people to you? I was praying this as I was writing this week. I said, Lord, do not let me ever forget that everything that I have that is good, that makes a difference in people's lives was provided by you. This should be the attitude of anybody who influences anyone else for the name of Christ, that at the end of the day, we are just beggars who are showing people where to find bread. That's it. I have found bread, the bread of life, and I am a beggar just saying, look what I found. I found it's for you too. For it is only Jesus who can say this, that I am the bread of life, that whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is the power. He is the strength. He is the name above all names, and he is the one that belongs, that all the glory belongs to. Amen? Now, this is also a warning to every one of us. Be careful who you follow. Be careful who you allow to influence you. We are not worried enough. We do not have enough fear in our lives about the possibility that we can be led astray by false teaching. With the internet now, we are flooded, and I mean flooded, with people who are teaching us about God. And they're exciting, and they produce great content. And, they, and they're good speakers. And so they're just, and they make you feel good. And so they're easy to follow. Jesus warned us, Paul warned us, that false Christs, that false prophets, that false teachers are going to rise up. They're going to perform great signs. They're going to perform great wonders. And if we're not careful, they'll lead us astray. 
Paul in Corinthians, when he talks about false prophets, he reminds the Corinthian church that, G, that Satan can come as an angel of light. And so that we can expect others to come as angels of light. In other words, they're going to come, they're going to look right, they're going to sound right, but in the end, they're preaching a false or incomplete gospel. And I was thinking, like, what are some things I can give you to watch for? And I think one of them is arrogance. If you ever come across a leader and they're going, if anyone disputes my teaching, he is of the devil, or he is wrong, or she is wrong, run. We are all fallible human beings. Acts highlights the Bereans who took Paul's teaching and they went home and they're like, okay, is what he said true? In fact, you should do that to me because I'm a fallible human being. You should say, oh, man, if what I'm reading, what Jeff is preaching, does this, is this right? Is he using this in context? Arrogance is a sign. Another sign is they check, they, they, they'll preach to you Bible verses that they cherry pick out of the Bible without ever giving you the context or without giving you uh, a full balance of all of scripture, how other scripture speaks to it. They'll just take one little verse, make it sound good, and you're like, hallelujah, yes, but it's out of context. Another one is that the, their focus of their teachings and their ministries is not just the gospel. They'll spend more time talking about their ministries or their particular slant than they do the gospel. Making you feel like there's things that you need beyond the gospel so it keeps you coming back to them because of fear and manipulation. And of course, they'll always find a way for you to support them financially. I was thinking today, what are some modern day Simons in the church? And I say modern day Simons because though it doesn't say this in scripture, there are four or five early church fathers who talk about how Simon, and from the way we write, it, it appears it's the same Simon, led many away from the church. I was thinking, okay, who are some modern day Simons? So I thought of one, I was thinking of the prosperity gospel. They teach you absolute trash. You know, trash is a compliment to the crud they teach you. Other words I'd like to use, but we're in church. I kid you not, they teach you that God's blessings for you are found in good health and found in good finances. That's the sign that God blesses you. In the complete and other arrogance that good health and great finances is what would spiritually grow us, where scripture shows us literally the exact opposite. And they tell you, if you give to my ministries, you're planting a seed, and God will produce a harvest of blessing. Some of the worst trash taught in the world. And you know where the, the, the places that the message like this is the biggest? In third world countries in places that are poor. People are so grasping for financial and for basic needs that they go to these preachers who sell them this garbage to line their own pockets. I thought about the charismatic movement 
those that have a hyper focus on the gifts of the Spirit and expressive worship. You'll see, it, see them uh, to some extremes violently shaking on the floor or laughing uncontrollably, running around the stage like, stage like an absolute crazed person. Now listen, I love expressive worship. We should not allow fear to keep us from raising our hands to the Lord or, or getting on our knees or, or praying. But there's a difference between expressive, expressive worship and uncontrolled, chaotic worship. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, whenever you come together, and each one of you has a hymn or a lesson or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done to build up one another. See, worship, it got chaotic in the church. Everybody was just doing what they wanted. And, and Paul's saying, look, no, there's a responsibility to one another. That God is a God of order. And we should not be a distraction. And so what you do is you have people getting into these chaotic, charismatic ministries and they get on this so high of having these big emotional experiences is that's what they need and require to be able to experience God. I think of certain kinds of deliverance ministries that I have run into. I ran into this, into, and probably you haven't even heard of these, some of you. I ran into them in Washington State. Uh, I ran into them when I first moved here in Wyckoff in New Jersey. There are people who get you hyper-focused on demons and how all of your sin and struggles, even as a Christian, are coming from demon oppression in your life. The gospel is not enough in these ministries. The Holy Spirit is not enough that you also have to come to these experienced deliverance ministers and you need to be delivered from this oppression. And my problem is, is these, because you have to be delivered, they have to pray over you and just kind of cast these, these, these demons out of you that are oppressing you, you have to keep coming back to these particular people to find freedom. Your dependence is on them and it's not on the cross. Now don't get me wrong. I believe there's a lot more going on in terms of spiritual warfare than most you and I ever realize. But with that said, if you read every letter of the New Testament, none of them, not a single one, directs you to fight the forces of evil this way. Not a one. Not one. They tell you to resist the enemy. James says in four, chapter 4, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will, anybody? He'll flee. And then, and then you go into Ephesians and, he's, and, and, and Paul says, in, in, in four maybe, I think, he says, focus on demons. No, he doesn't say that. He says this. He says, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Oh, I believe in deliverance. But I will tell you right now, the gospel brings all the deliverance you need. And anyone who hasn't experienced the deliverance that comes from the gospel and their hurts and their pains is because they haven't pressed in, they haven't dug in to the gospel. I think of prophet ministries. Listen, I'm gonna give you a great piece of advice right now. If any of you ever comes to you and they introduce themselves as, hi, I'm prophet so-and-so or I'm apostle so-and-so, run. Best piece of advice I'll ever give you. 
Now, I don't have time to go into the office of prophet, the office of apostle. But I've seen around in my time, in my life, people love to give themselves these names, and they love the glory that comes with it. They are people who tell you they are sent by God, who have special giftings, who have special revelation. And so because they have special giftings and special revelations, you have to keep coming back to them. You have to buy their books. You have to come to their conferences because they have what's special to God. This is a much different view than we see Paul, who literally wrote about 25% of the New Testament. And what does he say? He says, of all the sinners, I am the worst. Church, we must be on guard because the devil's tricky. He thinks of ways to try to get at us that you would never comprehend. Do not think he is not above using religion to trick us. Remember, the greatest lies, the most effective lies, always are based on some level of truth. He will use the things that look like following Jesus, but are not. I fully believe, and you see this struggle in the New Testament church, that he tried He tried stopping the church from the outside and it failed. And so his goal is now to try to stop the church from the inside. And we need to have some backbone as Christians. And we have to respond to these people the same way that Peter responds to Simon, where he says, you are going to perish. You better repent. He says in 8.23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness the bond of iniquity. This stands for like a very bitter, bitter ingredient. It's like a bitter, bitter herb. And, it, and it, it's conveying an extremely harsh and, and, and distasteful condition that Simon is in. He goes, you are still in the bondage of sin. So you're not saved. We must respond the same way. We must call out this evil among our friends and family that are falling for it. We must snatch those from the fire, as Jude would say. We must have the courage, as we're talking about in our men's study. But to do that, we have to know the word of God ourselves. You cannot know the word of God. You cannot know the truth by looking at it for three minutes every other week or every other month or on Sundays when the pastor reads a passage. It must be a daily part of your life. And I think one of the reasons it's not a daily part of our lives that you and I at times are not concerned enough about our ability to be deceived. I guarantee you, every one of you in this room, including me, there are things that we believe, things we think they're in the Bible, and they are not there because we heard it so much, it sounds good, and we've never bothered to check it to ourselves. I just had that happen to me three months ago. Me and Jobin discovered something was in the Bible that we thought was there all the time. It was something little, but still, we're like, oh, our lives. 
And listen, I, I want to be clear here. I'm, I'm not against miracles and signs and wonders. I don't see anything that says that the God that was, did the miracles in the Old Testament and the New is not the same God that is today. So it's, this is not an indictment of the power of God. I ain't one of those. But it's a warning that a person, how a person can think and feel about signs and wonders in a way that's very destructive. Miracles are not to be pursued because miracles do not save anybody. Now, listen, if God does one, awesome. Love that. I'd love to see it. And if he wants to use us to perform a miracle, great. He can and he will. But at the end of the day, all of the signs and wonders that you saw Jesus did, you saw Philip did, they were all just to get attention to point to the gospel. The miracle, the only miracle that matters, the death and resurrection of Jesus. There was a pastor named Adrian Rogers. I never read the book, but I love the title. It was called Believe in Miracles and Trust in Jesus. And this point of his book, Pursue Jesus. Pursue the goodness of the gospel. Every time you have a struggle, you have sin, you have unmet hurt, when you look in the mirror and you feel less than, when you're in struggling with depression, when you're struggling with addiction, to go back to the gospel and say, what does, how does the gospel affect how I view this about me, how I view my situation, how I view my past? That's where the miracles happen. And I've seen them in some of your lives. I have seen you in some of your lives. I have seen you struggle and go through things. And then as you've discovered the beauty of the gospel, I've saw you be freed from those things. Grow in those things. That's the miracles that matter. It's not the miracle that can regrow a limb. It is the miracle that can heal the soul, that can change a life. And only the gospel can provide it. And so brothers and sisters, may we be aware of false teaching. May we run from it. May we call it out for what it is. But most importantly, may it drive us to a love of God's word and his truth that we may experience the miracles of God's word through the power of his Holy Spirit.